I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is Talking About Our Generation. Have you ever watched toddlers play or laughed at the aimless, carefree romping of puppies? Do you ever wish our lives could be that simple again? That we could just be playful? Our world is so full of worries, so serious and heavy these days, we thought it might be nice to lighten things up a bit. And that's what this episode is about. As we ask the question, can you come out and play? We include this in our series on the state of civility in America because it seemed that if we could just learn to lighten up, to laugh, to play again as adults, civility might just follow. My guest is one of the world's foremost experts on the topic of play, Dr. Shepard Siegel. He earned his PhD at UC Berkeley with studies in anthropology and special education while implementing innovative internship programs for troubled and troubling youths, including those with disabilities. Shep takes his play very seriously. He's just come out with his second book on the subject. He's the descendant of bootleggers and oil barons and grew up in the utopian hippie era in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's also been a school teacher and is a jazz rock musician. In his books, Shep takes a deep dive into the topic of play. He also explores the character of the trickster in history, mythology, and culture, and its role in what he calls disruptive play. We were having so much fun, our conversation ran a bit long, so we're splitting it up into two parts. Here's my conversation with Dr. Shepard Siegel, part one. Shep Siegel, welcome to Talking About Our Generation. It is really wonderful to finally have you on our podcast. We've been trying for a while, so this is really, really wonderful. How are you today? I'm great, yeah, and thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, so let's get right to it, Shep. Uh, you've written two books. The One is Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, and your more recent book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, which is kind of a continuum of the first one. You cover a huge amount of information in those two books about the character of the trickster and his role throughout history, and also the critical part play or disruptive play has in our lives and in society. And this episode is part of the State of Civility in America series. I wanted to ask you, how your books offer some enlightenment on the issue of civility. Absolutely. Let me start by saying that civility is an essential component of creating a society, whether we're talking about our neighborhood, our city, our county, our state, our nation, or the world. It's a component of safety so that people can feel safe to be who they are fully, living a fulfilling life and, and being fully human. And being fully human means being playful, and you do need a degree of safety in order to do that. My theory and my premise 
is that if you can sustain that kind of safety through civility, that playfulness will blossom. And as we become more playful, it's inevitable that the trickster is going to show up and you're going to play some tricks. You talk about three different types of play. And you also say that there's like 40 definitions of play in the, in the dictionary. Let's narrow it down to the three types that you talk about in your book. Sure. And I might add that, you know, I do read the scholarship on play and a couple researchers have come up with 308 wow. different forms of play. Yeah. But I just concern myself with three. So the first is original play. And original play is something that all animals do and humans do, but they usually stop doing it by the ages of three, four, or five. It becomes less frequent. So original play is, is premoral. Um, Cindy Lauper sang it best. Girls just want to have fun. They just want to have fun and be playful. And it's defined in a physical sense. It can kind of be like wrestling, uh, where you get on the ground and you actually wrestle around. There's no hitting. There's no biting. It's not sexual. Um, no tickling. Um, no grasping. But you just kind of get on the ground and, and wrestle around. And you might play a little game, but then the game dissolves as quickly as it emerges. Then you get to cultural play. Cultural play is where games and competition enter into it. It's not evil. It's not good. As you saw with the Webster definitions being 40 definitions, it's a slippery, amorphous concept that things bleed into each other. So I like using the example of this great basketball player, Michael Jordan. If you watch Michael Jordan play basketball or any great athlete, and they're kind of experiencing both at the same time. They're winning a game because they're playing the game so well. They're competing so well. That's cultural play. But when we say they're in the zone, it's kind of like the flow, uh -huh. you know, where they're, they're, the alpha state is high and they're in the zone. They actually have original play as a resource. So both kinds of play are coexisting at the same time. It's a state of being that uh, uh, even you and I could recapture uh, in the right environment. Uh, you, can, you can reconnect with that form of original play, what animals and infants and toddlers do. I'm going to go back to original play. And you said that when we reach about three or four, that it all starts to change. And that one of the reasons is parents step in. So let's talk about that. Why is that? What happens? Full disclosure, I, I don't have any children. I've not, not raised a children. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> but I spent decades as a professional educator in public school systems. So worked with young people in that context. Um, but I, I think that uh, parents take on the teaching of right and wrong. And mm -hmm. also there's parents who involve their kids in competitive sports. And so at a very early age are transmitting lessons about winning and the importance of winning and winning is important but not that important uh, playing is and you know there was a movement in the 70s really that uh, called the new games movement right and they there was these whole books of these really really fun games that didn't have winners or losers but i don't think it ever i know it didn't catch on to the extent that I wish it had. Those books are 
still available. You'll find them in the musty section of your used bookstore. Um, the new games books. And I think the other thing in terms of child rearing is, is how structured it's become for a lot of children. And the idea of go out and play is something they don't get to do. They have to be supervised at all time or they're taking lessons of some kind. Mm -hmm. And so that original play time gets whittled away and sometimes whittled away all too soon. And we lose touch with it and it's not, it's not valued. Yeah, that's really interesting because when you were saying that, I was thinking about when I was a kid and all the times that I would go out into the world, not, you know, just the world being probably the two blocks around where I lived, but with just my brother out for a long time, unsupervised, climbing trees and catching butterflies and doing things I wasn't supposed to do, like walking around along the railroad tracks. Or One of the things I had when I was a kid, which is going to sound really bizarre to people, I loved cars, so I had a bunch of cars. And when I was a kid, a lot of people in my family, relatives, died. Mm -hmm. And so my parents would make us go to the funerals. And so when I'd come home, I'd take my cars and I'd build a car cemetery. <laughs> they'd have accidents and then they'd get buried in the yard. Yeah. yeah. Stupid stuff like that. But that's play. Right. And it's actually constructive play right. when I look at it. Now, I realize what I was doing. But I had a question based on what you were saying. Is play without ego? Does it translate to being yeah. egoless? or Because when you get into cultural play, ego definitely comes into it. Yeah. You know, I I would say so. I would say that when you're being truly playful, you're giving your ego a break. You're giving your ego a, a breather. Now, it can get very interesting. And I, I love your story about the car cemetery. It's, it's very imaginative. And the way that you took that in and your brain processed it in this way translated these dead folks into cars. I, I find that fascinating. Your comment brings me back to archetypes and my small contribution to that conversation is that at least in this country, we've become infatuated with the warrior archetype and it's gotten out of hand and everything is seen in terms of the warrior. Everything from camo being a fashion statement to the billions dollar industry of professional sports. I love sports. I'm a sports fan. I don't know why so much money has to be tied up into it. <sighs> the, the, the example that gives me pain is to talk about Oakland, California, and how the professional sports team, the Raiders in particular, took advantage of that city as if that city doesn't need more investment in jobs and making that a healthy community. But the warrior is so attractive to so many Americans. And there is a quote in the new book where uh, Sean Hannity talks about the debates that were happening between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And he does a wonderful job of describing the warrior archetype. Take the gloves off, break all the rules, be a warrior, just kick ass. And a lot of people listen to that show. And a lot of people want to solve problems through violence. Now, you can't kill an archetype. You can't get rid of it. 
you just have to get it back into proportion. And this is what you were talking about, Julian, is in terms of perspective and proportion. So my my small two cents is just that the the warrior archetype, as it inhabits so many people, we've become infatuated with it and it's just gotten out of hand. And that's why, it's one of the reasons why, hey, let's listen up to the trickster a little bit more often. So cultural play is about trying to win and having to suffer loss. When it gets out of hand, you have the very worst form of cultural play possible, which is war. Mm-hmm. And also, I do believe that commercialism and consumerism is a form of cultural play and that all day long, when there's a part of our soul that wants to be involved in original play, advertising and commerce and things that pop up on your computer screen are constantly harassing that part of it. And it's it's a form of cultural play because they want to win your attention. Mm-hmm. And then they want to win your credit card number and your money. And we all have to engage in commerce, but I think it's become too invasive. It's gotten out of hand. I think cultural play has gotten out of hand. Coming back to civility again, you talk about that transition from original to cultural play. Like there was the example of the hockey dads. Yes. These fights broke out among the parents of, of these kids playing hockey. And I think he actually killed someone. But it's now... I mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of commonplace, that kind of thing. Even if it's not directly related to play, I mean, it's like people going to football games and baseball games and, and then getting into these horrific fights afterwards where people actually die because they have this competitive passion, which is... Out of hand. Yeah. What could parents do to encourage their kids to do their best without it being the thing? You're making a great point, and you know, you just really helped me make a connection because I know that you're doing this series on civility, and I'm thinking about my favorite tricksters and, you know, even Bugs Bunny, you know, the great American trickster. They all get kind of rude and uncivil sometimes, and I was struggling with it. But listening to you talk just now, I'm now seeing a connection between civility and playfulness. I used to play softball with a bunch of friends, and we called it Zen Ball. You had to get three outs in order to get up to bat, but we didn't keep score. It was as simple as that, and we called it Zen Ball, and it was fun. So in other words, we shrunk the competitive arena to just, you got to get three outs and so that you can keep on playing. It's the difference between playing to win and playing in order to keep on playing. Now, To take your example specifically, if there was some kind of a program whose watchword was civility, was let's bring civility back to youth sports, to Little League. Let's make it civil. Let's consciously de-emphasize winning and losing. And let's amplify playing the game well and, quote, having fun, unquote. By introducing civility as the watchword of your program, I predict that what would happen is kids would have more fun. But my main point is disruptive play, and that's the third kind. So what's disruptive play? Well, if you take original play and you inject it into the arena of cultural play, that's disruptive play. One example would be, if you remember several decades ago, there was this brief fad of streaking. 
and people would run onto the NFL <laughs> football field right. naked in the middle of a football game. Right. That's disruptive play. They're being, I'm naked and I'm in public and I'm running around and I'm disrupting cultural play with original play. So that's what it, disruptive play is in its simplest form. What is the intention of doing something like that, though, other than being disruptive? I mean, they're, I'm, I'm assuming, I, I'm going to go deeper into each of these in a little bit, but I'm assuming that when you have someone, using your example of someone streaking, uh, you know, they're live on camera, millions of people are seeing them. What is the intention, if there is an intention, other than I'm going to be silly? I mean, it. it I'm. I'm assuming that there's a deeper something under all that, some deeper meaning. Is or am or is it not? Is it just simply being disruptive? Well, I'm quite satisfied with silly most of the time, but the the premise of the book, of both books really, is that if you get a grown up who has retained the ability to be playful as they were as a very young child, I mean very young, before the age of three, um, if they have retained that, that connection to that kind of playfulness, as a grown up, consciously or unconsciously, they are going to engage with the trickster. Can you tell us in a few words who or what is a trickster? Sure. Well, trickster is an archetype in the Jungian sense of the word. So you have the, the mother, the hero, the warrior, the caretaker, the magician, and the trickster is one of those archetypes. It's like a demigod, is someone who has a certain level of perfection. So lowercase t trickster is a human being, and an uppercase t would be a fictional character or a god or a folklore character. A piece that Adam Gopnik wrote in the New Yorker online, and he's talking about Zelensky, a comedian who's the leader of Ukraine and is pretty damn serious, yet he's a man in touch with his playfulness. And I'm substituting the word trickster for clown. Gopnik used the word clown. And I think there's a real difference between clowns and tricksters. And he said tricksters upset order in order to help us imagine a better world. Tricksters are utopian, ultimately, if they've completed the cycle enough times. In the books, I profile individual people because that helps readers get a hold of what I'm saying. Even if that person is Bugs Bunny, the great American trickster, Bugs Bunny is an archetype because he's fictional. He can fully embody all the archetypal qualities. And people like the Marx Brothers, for example, are lowercase t tricksters. Some of my heroes and who embody both the hero and the trickster are the yes men. And so the yes men have really gone through that cycle and they have uh, an agenda of liberation, but they continue to pull pranks and tricksterish things. Uh, tricksters basically just want to have fun. They're morally indeterminate, but they embark on a journey. And in that journey, through various episodes of tricking others and tricking themselves and having fun and failing and suffering humiliation, as well as triumph, um, they eventually discover morality. So I think of inhabiting the trickster for short periods of time is a way that people can take a fresh look at morality. So the trickster being amoral, and then you said finds morality, uh, does that mean they're no longer immoral or? Right. 
Right. Another great contemporary example is uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Absolutely. Yeah, who is able to find finds humor in what are otherwise very serious situations. When I first heard of your book and the word trickster, which, you know, I haven't really thought about much through life as a archetype, but obviously I knew it because of Sasha Baron Cohen and way back to when I was a kid and Bugs Bunny and yeah. characters like that. But we also have to talk about what most people probably think of as the trickster, whether it's correct or wrong, is someone like Trump. Mm. Why do we look at Trump as a trickster? And is he really a trickster? Right. Um, in my world, um, he doesn't quite pass muster. The main places, the, the two places where Trump fails to pass the test are that Tricksters mock power. They don't seek to amass or accumulate power. They mock power, which is why finding uh, tricksters in governance is extremely rare. And the second thing is, to be a trickster, one has to be willing to suffer humiliation. So um, former President Donald Trump does, doesn't really pass muster for me. I like to compare it to the Star Wars uh, movies where we talk about the Force. And the Force represents the hero and the warrior. And when, when the Force is strong with a person, that means they've got a lot of hero and warrior in them. And of course, a human being cannot be an archetype. So lowercase t trickster is a human being for whom the Force is strong with them, the trickster Force. And an uppercase T would be a fictional character or a god or a folklore character. So with Donald Trump, I would not say the force is strong with him. It also brings up another question for me, which was that I, I grew up thinking, as I think many people do, when you, when you hear the term amoral, it is much more associated with immoral right. than it is moral, right. um, which is incorrect. But... I mean, do you know how we ended up in that place where we think of amoral as immoral? I do. I, I can sense, and sometimes in conversation with people, the word is difficult for them. And there are folks who subscribe to particular theologies and religious doctrines that say, if it's not good, it must be evil. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um so I have stopped using that term, um, but thanks for bringing it back. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry. It's okay. In my research that I did following the first book, I became quite engrossed with Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s book, The Signifying Monkey. Gates uses the word morally indeterminate, which in a way is a better term in, in a couple of ways because it infers... It's a mouthful. It is, but it, it infers that journey. It infers I'm morally indeterminate. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm. Tricksters are, um, this is one of the other interesting paradoxes of tricksters. They are both saviors and liars. So when John Lennon and Yoko Ono take out a billboard that says war is over, that's disruptive play. They're saying, let's be, let's have a peaceful world. Let's have a playful world when they know darn well it's not. But they are disrupting 
the cultural play of the war by declaring it over before it actually is. Right. So I want to go back just a bit now to uh, original play. And I want to read something that you wrote that was just quite beautiful. And it's just, play is just such an unbearably beautiful energy. It's the root of all creativity, the beautiful example of that plastic bag bouncing in the wind, the romping, laughing, aimless play of infants. We see it in nature, too. All animal species seem to play just for the fun of it. What a wonderful notion. I, I get that completely. And reading that now, I'm, I'm seeing more where you're coming from with the streaker, just being playful. Like the intention is to just be playful. In reading about it, and especially thinking about animals, I mean, I, I really love animals. I'm a huge wildlife lover. And it made me think of bonobos. And I don't know how familiar you are with bonobos. And they are a species of ape, and they're very close-knit society. And they've also created a society where they resolve their conflicts through lovemaking. And that's male and female, 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 male, male, it doesn't matter. But they have reached this point in their society where they have figured out a playful way of resolving issues. Now, I don't know how it ends up resolving it other than taking the tension away. But um, people, you know, they're always talking as if we are superior to animals. And yet there's so much that we can learn from the way animals are. Do you think there are things that we can learn from animals? Oh, I sure do. You know, I did read up on bonobos a little bit, but I, I didn't retain a whole all that much of it. And I, I'd really love to do a future episode with you guys, and we should broadcast it from a bonobo colony so we can be... Oh, my God, that would be so great. <laughs> yeah, we could be on site and we can give firsthand... Uh, first-hand accounts. <laughs> right. But, the, you know, I, I, I totally get that. And at the same time, you know, it makes me think of the 60s, the late 60s, early 70s, which we are children of. And mm -hmm. just our whole attitude about sex and, and just about everything. There was this, uh, you know, you talk about being in the flow and that and life so, so much felt like it was in the flow to me back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, that it just went from one thing to another and it all had, well, not maybe not 100%, but a very high percentage of it felt good and happy yeah. and easy to relate to people. And sex was part of that. And then, you know, and I'm thinking about this in terms of civility too. It seems like play reached this point where it became, I, I can't think of a better word for it, but then extreme. Sure. Um, people were, you used to smoke pot and everything, and then it went into harder drugs, and then it became a serious thing where people were dealing and people were getting killed and people taking sex beyond a, the mutual respect of, of those kind of intimate relationships or any number of things. It just, everything seemed to go tilt over and fall. That, that, that's historically accurate. You know, um, you know, I write about everything from mythology and folklore and various forms of history to cartoon characters, to popular culture, to contemporary politics. 
But my original inspiration happened when I was a teenager in the 60s, and I felt that sense of utopian possibility. And there was this brief moment that that the civil rights movement and the um, utopianism uh, of, of the hippies and the political activism of the yippies cohered. We've learned since then that achieving that alliance and that coherence takes a whole lot of work, but there was still a magical moment where people had all kinds of permission to dream and it inspired the work that I do today. And I think I, I, I don't indulge in nostalgia, but I do think that some of the things that folks like you and I learned back then are learnings that we need to share and be able to put into new contexts. And that's what I try to do. Have we stumbled and fallen? Yeah, every day. <laughs> every, you know, when you talk about how, you know, the Haight-Ashbury's moment was over almost as quickly as it began and so forth and we have to uh we have to address those things but we but that doesn't mean you stop trying so that 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 really is a, a big part of what i'm about when we talk about our utopian dream or values um or whatever's left of them from our youth on our website we have this picture of these granny glasses these rose-colored granny glasses i don't know if you've seen it right, right. i have seen those and there's a big crack going through <laughs> right. the glasses, um, right. which is our visual statement about where we are. Is like that's really the premise for this whole podcast. Is right. how did we get here from there? Right. You know, and what can we do about it? I agree with you. And you asked, you know, how did how did we get here? I, I you know, I really couldn't help thinking about income inequality and how the current forms of capitalism have created too much wealth for certain individuals and certainly too much poverty for millions more. And the way the gig economy works and the, the way jobs are getting restructured, it's too hard for too many people. I consider myself a feminist and want to see women on equal footing in the workplace. But what capitalism did when more women entered the workplace was they said, oh, the husband and the wife are both working. I guess we don't need to pay them as much. Mm. You think that's what happened? Uh -huh. And thus, you get parents who don't get to spend time with their kids because they both have to work so hard in order to support the household. And I think this is part of what your comment inspired in me. I don't know if it's something we've done to ourselves or if it's government that has created this kind of systemic. I mean, part of it is the government, the you or, know the way we do things that has made some of definitely the inequality systemic, mm -hmm. and that is another subject. Yeah, and our economic I think, system. <laughs> Oh, huge that we're, we're going to try and stick to original play, cultural play, and disruptive play so, so, so that we can keep this conversation going without Rob going crazy in there. But um, <laughs> uh, I forgot you've, you've got there's a yeah, 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 never mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, because I kind of was inferring. Um, right-wing doctrine when I talked about the warrior. 
and to be fair, I think one of the dangers, if you want to describe my political perspective, I'm, I'm against doctrine. I'm all for a lot of progressive values, but I get nervous when they become um, codified into some form of doctrine. And to look at it through the archetype, I think that the concern I might have with left-wing doctrine is the mother archetype, that if the mother archetype gets out of hand, then there is a government that knows what's best for me and is going to take care of me. I do not consider myself a libertarian, but at the same time, I might bridle under too much social engineering, and I don't need to get into specifics, but I, I give credence to that. I tend to talk about the political social vision that I'd like to see us get to. If we were playful more often, it's a component of what it takes for human beings to become a better animal, so to speak. Um, I'm delving into morality here, but that's okay. Um, and we're going to get there. Because, Julian, I, I think that the historical moment we're in right now, as dire as it is, between the environment and war and income inequality and all the isms that we're challenging. I think it's a good time to talk about utopia. So I just like to say that I'm not a proponent of left-wing doctrine. I'm not a supporter of right-wing doctrine. I believe in what's up doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That was part one of our conversation with Shepard Siegel, a fun conversation, but admittedly a lot to take in and think about, especially what play means and how important it is to us as adults in helping us to live more civil, kinder lives. It brought to mind a memory and, in fact, a more intimate type of disruptive play. One I want to leave with you to percolate in your thoughts. Some years ago, I was on an intensive Shakespeare study program at Balliol College in Oxford, which is in itself a kind of play that, if you're familiar with studying Shakespeare, it's very disruptive to the thought process down to the very iambic pentameter. There was a woman there, unfortunately, I don't remember her name, and yet she is so completely relevant to the work we're doing with this podcast. She was 85, 85 years old, an American like me, taking on a series of courses on Shakespeare that was not for the faint-hearted. And is my curious nature, I asked her why she was doing it, why she was there. And she said, to shake things up a bit. I guess pun intended, but from that moment, I had a great admiration for her. Not because she was 85, but because she was defying everything we're conditioned to believe about who and what an 85-year-old should be. Isn't that a unique and interesting take on disruptive play? I leave you with that until part two. I want to take a moment to talk about supporting our podcast, but first, we wanted to express our thanks and gratitude to Family Nation and its founder, John Spitters, for their generous donation and help in making our podcast possible. We also invite you, our listeners, to donate to our podcast, if you can, by visiting our website and clicking on the support link. 
And if you can't make a donation but like what you've been hearing on our podcast or have other comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can do that on the website too. You can also learn more about our guest Shepard Siegel, including where to purchase his books, by visiting www.talkingaboutourgeneration.com. That's talking without the G and about without the A. We've also added a page with links to organizations where you can make a donation to support the humanitarian relief effort for Ukraine. Thank you, Rob Wilson, our director, for taking on this wild ride of an interview and making it into something that allows its playfulness to shine. And thank you, as always, to Bill Aldridge for your wonderful theme music. And of course, heartfelt thanks to our amazing guest, Shepard Siegel. We want to leave you with this fun piece of music from A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, a totally un-PC movie that is full of tricksters and deceivers from the 1960s. Here's Comedy Tonight from A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing for kings, nothing for crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Oh, situations, new complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Something convulsive, something repulsive. Something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something aesthetic, something frenetic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing of gods, nothing of fate. Weighty affairs will just have to wait. Our principal characters live on this street in a less fashionable suburb of Rome in these three houses. First, the house of Erroneus, a befuddled old man, abroad now in search of his children, stolen in infancy by pirates. Something erratic, something dramatic, something for everyone tonight. Second, the house of Lycus, a buyer and seller of the flesh of beautiful women. That's for those of you who have absolutely no interest in pirates. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. And finally, the house of Senex, who lives here with his wife and son. Also in this house dwells Suitless, slave to his son. Suitless is probably my favorite character in the piece. A role of enormous variety and nuance, and played by an actor of such versatility, such magnificent range, such, let me put it this way, I play the part. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone and comedy tonight. Something that's gaudy, something that's gaudy, something for everybody's day. Pantaloons and tunics, partisans and eunuchs, funerals and chases, baritones and basses, panderers, philanderers, cupidity, timidity, mistakes, fakes, rhymes, rhymes, tumblers, rumblers, rumblers, Royal curse, no Trojan horse, and there's a happy
This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law, Section 107, which reads, The Fair Use of a Copyrighted Work. For purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website, at TalkingAboutOurGeneration.com.